Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Academy Technical Director of Al Jazeera, James Gow. James, welcome to the show. Connor, how are you? Thanks a lot for having me on, mate. James, obviously you're only down the road for me now in Abu Dhabi, not too far away from Dubai indeed. But uh, judging by your accent, you grew up far away. <laughs> what, yeah. What was your earliest football memory today? Uh, good question. My earliest football memory, um, it was going to watch Liverpool play against Middlesbrough. And I remember my dad taking me and my brother. And uh, Liverpool won, I think, 5-0 or 5-1. Robbie Fowler scored, I think, three or four goals. I always remember, for some reason, I remember my dad getting me a bar of chocolate with a Liverpool wrapper on. It's always, it's always stayed in my mind. I always remember then carrying that bar of chocolate out into the stadium and then eating it whilst watching all of the fans pile into the into the ground and uh, sure enough Liverpool won well out of all the memories we've had on I think that must be right up there but um, obviously <laughs> you know you mentioned there briefly like growing up in Liverpool you know obviously a football mad city football you know deeply embedded within the psyche what put you down the coaching route <clears throat> Probably because, probably to be honest with you, a couple of things. One, because I wasn't going to make it as a player. Um, I loved football. I was addicted to playing football. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that, as everybody's dream is when you're a young lad is to be a professional football player. But it probably just wasn't just good enough, you know, and um, I wasn't too far off and I, I was a bit of a late developer. But I think by that time it was, it was too late and then I... I had a bad injury, um, an ankle injury. And then um, my brother was coaching. He was a coach doing like multi-sports and things like this in schools. And um, I thought, wow, I can be a football coach and, and get paid to, you know, to still be involved in the game. And that, that was a bit of a kind of catalyst for me. And I started coaching Liverpool's disability team as, as a volunteer. Uh, myself and my brother, and I just, I just fell in love with it. I loved it. Just being, loved being out on the pitch, interacting with people, kicking a ball around. Um, so I would say there, there was a couple of things. One that I loved football, and then two, I realised that you could actually turn your passion into a job, which yeah. I, I think is a difficult thing to do to be able to monetize your passion, being able to make a career out of your passions. Not, not an easy thing to do, but you know, I think we're very fortunate that. We do make a living out of, of the thing that we love. Exactly. And it's something, James, we go back and forth with the whole time. We, we speak with people. We know people in our own family or inner circle, best friends that are in all these different industries. And there's a lot to be said for having fixed ended goals. But then there's an awful lot to be said for, as you just said, you know, having a curiosity, following your passion, see where that lends itself towards. And obviously, you know where I'm going with this one. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing your first job in professional football is with Liverpool then you go back you do a Masters in John Moores and you gain an internship where it's Sir Kenny Dalglish's Liverpool side in 2011 2012 just even walking into that environment as a 22 year old with the likes of Stephen Gerrard Luis Suarez Jamie Carragher I mean how did that experience rub off on you? Yeah, I think you're being a bit generous because I haven't got a master's. I'd love to have a master's, but that I was a second year uh, undergrad when I got into uh, when I started with Liverpool as an intern. 
but I'll uh, I'll take the masters now. How <laughs> um, was that? It was insane. Yeah, it was it was an amazing experience because as as a Liverpool fan, it's drilled into you that Kenny Daglish is the king, you know, and you 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 grow up watching Liverpool and you go to the match and you get this in, in, incredible buzz from watching the team that you love and uh, it's all you're almost indoctrinated. It's like a religion. I think if you grow up in Liverpool, that football, Liverpool, and Everton are everything to you. And it's probably only when you go to other parts of the world that you realise people don't share that same intensity and same love for the game and and passion for the game as you, as you do if you come from the city and. When I when I got the opportunity to go to the club and work at Melwood, that was you know it was like a dream come true. I almost had to pinch myself sometimes. I couldn't believe I was walking through the door or you know driving in. And I always remember driving in and my little Fiat Punto. I think my mum's Fiat Punto it might be my own, but I had a Fiat Punto, and in front of me would be like Martin Skirtle, who had a Bentley Sport, and behind me would be um, Suarez and Ferrari or something, you know. And I was driving in this little Fiat Punto, and then. Walking, you almost feel a little bit of an imposter, if I'm being honest, because you're thinking, I, I must have, you know, I must have hit the jackpot. I'd say a funny thing. I remember uh, one game we got asked to put up the set pieces in the stadium, in the, in the dressing rooms before the game. Myself and a good mate, Bradley Wall, he's uh, he's now with Wolves now, Brad. And he and I were both in the changing room putting up all these set pieces just on the wall. And you had Gerard walking in, Pepe Reina, Carragher, Suarez. They were all in the in the change room. Me and Brad were in there, two good mates, only twenty two years old or something, looking at each other, thinking, "How have we have we done this?" And like, you know, I remember going into like the bathroom and uh, thinking, "Oh my god, look at all this stuff!" You know, we got tons of Lucas Aid, Jaffa cakes, Barry Bowie. I was helping myself to all of them, and um, you know we. Just walking through the door at Melbourne, and I remember probably one of the first days I was there. Stephen Gerrard holding the door open for me, and I, you know he was an idol for me. He was someone that uh, I'd always uh, you know idolised growing up, and I couldn't believe he he was the captain of Liverpool, captain of England, and he opens the door for people. It was uh, it was almost like a dream. But like being in such a high performance environment where you have individuals as named you know, holding themselves to such a high standard. I mean, is that infectious? Did that rub off on you? Like, for example, if you're putting in the 50, 60 hours there, it's not enough. Mm. You quite quickly learn what elite looks like, I would say. You quite quickly learn that there's elite standards and there's normal standards. And, and Liverpool Football Club is, is elite in pretty much everything it does. And... Um, you learn that you plan more. You learn that you communicate more. You learn, you know, different parts of the game that you never thought about. And the game's broken down to so many different dimensions. You learn about leadership and what elite leaders look like. Because one thing I've learned in in all my different roles and watching leaders do it is leadership isn't easy. You know, managing people is not easy, and it's a you know it's a probably a really undervalued skill. But you know, when you're there. Uh, a club like Liverpool, you're getting to watch people like Kenny Daglish lead the group, Brendan Rodgers when he came in, you know, an academy level, Rodolfo Burrell and Alex Inglethorpe, you're getting to see how they make people perform, you know, how they create an environment for people to perform. And I would certainly say that standards is something that's a word banded around a lot, and it, but it actually means something. Um, I remember doing like a little 
training session when I was with the academy. Um, and I think Mike Marsh was the coach, really top guy. I was an analyst, I was an intern, still at the club, working as an analyst across the first team in the academy. Mike Marsh was taking the training session. And all my job was to, just to feed the ball back into the session. And I remember there was the session going on with players who were Suso and other players who were part of this group. And all I had to do was feed the ball back into the session. And that was it. And I remember switching off for a moment because I was just mesmerised by the quality of football that was on display. And uh, Marcy stopped the session and just went and said, look, you do that again, you'll be back in the sheds. Or something. I hadn't even been in the sheds, you know, I'd never worked, worked in the sheds. But it just it goes to show that one detail matters. You know, if I don't feed that ball back in quick enough, the intensity's not high enough. If the intensity's not high enough, the players don't get better. So they, you know, they're, they're stand, standards that have an, an impact in everything that you do. Uh, and I think that was that was a good environment for us, or an incredible environment for myself and, and the other lads who were there um, to really understand what elite meant and, and what working hard meant. And I've always worked hard. I think that's ingrained in me and I think that's ingrained in, in a lot of scouts is, is that we want to work hard and we, you know, we understand that you've got to put hours into something. If you put hours into something that you love as well, then that's a passion. You know, I think if you put hours into something you hate, then that's hard work, that's stress, that's not something you want to do. Um, but putting hours into something that you love, even though at times it can be difficult, you you know, I think that that's something that you, you, you find very, very meaningful. And I suppose there's no greater gift than when you're enabled to share that passion with other people. And I suppose you were privileged to represent Liverpool both in China and in Australia. But I suppose with Liverpool on the cusp of winning a maiden Premier League title in 2014, James, what were the set of circumstances that led you to accepting that job offer to go to China? Um, I, I was working full-time at the club and the club was starting to roll out. And they were only in the kind of embryonic stage there, international academies. Um, and they wanted somebody to go over to China. You know, I think most coaches are professional clubs generally are a fair bit older. They have, you know, a playing career behind them and then become coaches and they needed someone to go to China and I'd completed my A for B licence quite young. So I'd had a fair bit of experience as a coach. I'd, I'd, been, I'd developed Liverpool's leadership and management courses. So I was really interested in leadership and managing projects. Um, and I'd already been away with the club a lot on different trips. And uh, I think they, you know, they, they saw that, they said to me, would you, would you be interested in doing this? And I think because I didn't have a family, because I was single, because I was hungry, because I liked to travel, it all made sense. But Liverpool were about to win the, 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 the Premier League, so I did I did ask them. And I did, I did stipulate that I won't move out until the end of the season. And uh, unfortunately, fortunately, it didn't pan out how we wanted it to. But um, that's, that's how it came around, yeah. It was... It was Kind of, they, they they were starting these programs. They wanted someone to go over, somebody who knew the club, and I uh, was fortunate enough to be selected for it. And you could have selected kinder environments than China to build a program from scratch. <laughs> yeah, China was uh, probably one of the most difficult periods I've ever faced in in my life. Is that is moving to China? It was probably one of the most valuable learning experiences I've ever had. Um, but it was so far removed from what I knew. 
it was totally, you know, totally, totally different from anything I'd ever been exposed to before. The culture was was so different to the culture back home. And um, I think, you know, the first few weeks, within the first six weeks, I could have seriously probably moved home. If, if somebody really pushed me, I might have done. And I remember being in bed a few nights thinking, and be only because really I'd met a guy called Michael Schofield, top, top guy. I'd met him a few months, uh, a year earlier, and I still use Michael now as a uh, as a sounding board and as a, as a mentor and a coach. Um, but Michael and I had been delivering these courses together. He's a, a business coach. And um, I remember him showing me this diagram about comfort zones, and he was talking about... You know, how you feel when you're in your comfort zone, how you feel in your stretch zone, how you feel in your panic zone. And his whole point was that in your comfort zone, you're not moving anywhere. You don't want to be in your panic zone because it's not good for anybody. You know, your IQ drops and, you know, it's too overwhelming, but you want to be on the very edge of your stretch zone and feelings of discomfort, feeling nervous, feeling alone, you know, feeling uh, a kind of oblivious to everything and and and. I remember being in them moments thinking about that diagram that he drew throughout showing me, thinking, well, I'm probably in a good place if I feel this uncomfortable um, and I can deal with it. So looking back, it was probably, it taught me a lot in a very short space of time. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think actually a lot of people have said to me it was a big step to take at 23. And it, it probably was, but it was, it was a brilliant place. It, you know, it was interesting. It was things that, you wouldn't typically see foods that you wouldn't typically want to eat. I remember coming into the academy one day and the the uh, the chef says, Jamusa, Jamusa, who call, calls me Jamusa instead of James, said, Jamusa, can, can, can. And he shows me this uh, this plate that he's made for me, you know, and I didn't want to offend him, but it, he basically said, have, have a try this, have a try this. And I looked at him and I thought, absolutely no chance I'll be trying that. He'd done me a plate of wasps. And there's no, you know, I was a vegetarian at the time. There was no chance I was going to start eating wasps as my first uh, first entrance into meat. So, uh, but again, as I said, it was, you know, it was a fun experience. It was a brilliant experience. It taught me a lot of different things. That's too, uh, dissimilar to Chipper and Boodle during the summer. That's it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Loads of salt and vinegar on it. <laughs> but even then, like, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, they said there's that old adage, James, in there, like in education, first you get the test, then you learn. First you learn the lesson, then you take the test. In life, yeah. you take the test, then you learn the lesson from it. And uh, I suppose there's no, there's no real substitute then actually going through these experiences. But even, you know, greatness in one area leads to greatness in another. And I suppose your ability to kind of articulate and speak so eloquently about your experiences then only a few years ago in China you know, must rub off in your ability and your effectiveness as a coach to kind of highlight that challenge sweets, uh, challenge skill sweet spot for players and coaches. I think it's hard, isn't it, sometimes to connect the dots, you know, when you when you you look back at all the, the, the and, and I know you, you're, you're similar in that, you look back at all the different hours you've done and all the different reading and all the different visits you've done to speak to people and all the different courses you've been on and watching the game and you know, you, 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 you see, it's sometimes difficult to say, well, how does this all connect? Because you can't, you can't see it in advance. But I think when you look back, then you can connect the dots. You go, well, actually, I did this in China seven years ago. 
and it helped, you know, I did this in China seven years ago and it'll help me today. And you start to connect all of these different dots. And I think it's hard to do that when you're in the moment, but when you look back, you go, well, wow, this all did make sense. And it all did help you to become what you are and at, at this moment in time. I think you're still evolving, of course. Mm-hmm. I think you're always still evolving. Um, but, it, you know, even, even now, you know, you, you, you might have a few difficult days and, I don't think every day is going to be easy. Uh, it shouldn't be easy for, for what we do. And um, lots of the time, of course, that doesn't mean you're not enjoying it. And it doesn't mean that you not don't find passion in it. But sometimes there can be difficult days and you, then you have to go back to them moments and go, well, actually, you know, I can, I can zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture and say, well, I know these dots will connect somewhere at some point down the line. Yeah, and I think that's a key lesson what you just after mentioned there. You don't necessarily have to know that you're enjoying the experience to know that you're improving at it and it's that mm-hmm. balance when you're working in youth development like both of us James I mean winning and development obviously mm-hmm. winning is very important but it's very much a short-term thing development is something which elongates over time and of course you're after going to club there Al Jazeera renowned throughout the Emirates for its vision and for its policy and youth development in the last year the title winning team had 17 members from the youth academy within the setup. I mean, for yourself, going in to that club with already sustained success over the years, being world-renowned for its youth development policy. I mean, what are the challenges or what are the stepping stones for yourself now to build upon that? I would say you have to understand the local culture and I think you have to understand the size of the academy within the structure of the club, you know, I uh, when I first came to Jazeera, I probably didn't know just how big the club was, and knew it was a big club, but I didn't know it was as big as it is. Huge stadium, big fan base, and an intensity, I would say, around the academy. You know, people will talk about the first team, but they'll talk a lot about the academy. You know, every every lots of people I speak to are Jazeera fans, the first thing they want to talk about is the academy because. It's almost part of the DNA that, you know, as you mentioned there, a huge percentage of players in the first team now came through our academy, which is wonderful. Um, but it's certainly not something I take lightly and certainly a, a tradition that I want to continue. And I think there's things that we're putting in place that will ensure that continues. And, you know, we've got big aspirations. We want to we want to develop really top, top class football players, not just to play for the first team, but also to play um, for the national team and the dream would one day be able to to go and play in, in, in the league in Europe. And in order to do that, we do have to make some changes. You know, I, I love that saying, progress isn't pros- possible without change. And if you never change your mind, you never change anything. And I think change is generally a word that's, generally a word that's internalised with fear by lots of people because they don't know what to expect. It's going to be different from what they know. But really, if, if we want to progress and improve, you've, you've got to make changes as you go along. I think if you've ever read that book, Legacy by the All Blacks, they say when you're on top of your game, change your game. And it's true. We, we've got a lot of players that have come into the first team, but we want to understand why they've gone into the first team and what things can we do to improve to ensure we produce better players and, and, and keep that conveyor belt of players from the academy through to the first team. And, you know, there's there's 
things that I think we're putting in place now and better support structures around coaches, better support structures around players. We've got some fantastic coaches, really, really good group of coaches. We've got, I think, a very clear vision and strategy set out by the management of the club. And um, one of my key roles is to is to take that, look at how that applies to the, the, the environment that we're in, the players that we've got, the coaches that we've got, and then execute it. Um, so there's, you know, I often find there's a billion different cogs that have to be brought into into play for that to be achieved. Um, and it feels like we're on the way to that. You know, we're having lots of good, we're doing lots of good things with the players and I can see improvements in the players. Two players now have already made their debut for the first team since they've been here. Now that's obviously, I might have had the tiniest little bit of influence on that, but that's the work that everybody's done beforehand. Um, so there's lots of lots and lots of good things in place, but it's definitely not something I, I take lightly, you know. And I suppose you speak about the support network there, and it seems to be the perfect marriage between yourself and sporting director Mads Davidson. Mads is well renowned for being, not necessarily being a critic, but being what being a sporting director that's been vocal in the football industry about speaking about the sustainability of clubs. At football, most clubs are often built on brittle foundations. So it kind of makes sense that Mads would take on a challenge where the academy is at the centre of the project and whatnot. And I think it's it's misconceptions really too, James. People don't understand until they're out here of how actually proud the local people are of their sport, of their football, of their local players. And it's just... When you're able to implement, I suppose, the experience you've ascertained from working at Liverpool, working in Australia, working in China, multiplied but that by what they already have in place, it seems to be a win formula. Yeah, I think so. Look, in many ways, certainly. Um, what I would say about Mass is Mass is uh, a very, I would say, strong leader. He's a, he's a wonderful leader. You know, he sets out a vision alongside other members at the club. Um, and a, and a really strong strategy that has legs. But of course, in order to really stick to it, that you have to be robust. And one thing I really admire about Mass is he is robust. Uh, and, and you know, I think he's he's somebody, and I've talked to him a lot about that, who's, who does question the pitfalls in, in strategies within football clubs and professional football clubs, because a lot of it is about quick wins. And whilst quick wins are important, that doesn't necessarily lead to sustainability. And what Mass is striving for is something that's sustainable. And uh, I think he's got a wonderful strategy and, and, and I totally buy into that. And I know pretty much everybody else in the club does as well. And that's something in itself to get so many people to buy into, into one thing and convince them that this is the right path to follow and the right direction to head in. Um but, you know, I, I've got a, a fantastic relationship with Mass. We speak daily. He's, uh, he's somebody I, I turn to for advice. He's somebody I turn to for opinion. And, you know, as I said, he, he provides great kind of direction for the club and it makes my job easy to say, well, if this way we're heading towards, these are the things I've got to put in place to, to, to ensure we get there uh, from the academy level. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a constant conversation between, Mass and I, I think that's important. Is that you know you want to have a solid plan, you want to have a solid vision, 
but you've got to assess and analyze and adapt and be agile as, as you move along that as well. And perhaps you speak about earlier positive change, change necessarily not being a bad thing. You've been at the club for four or five months now, James. Would you be able to take us inside some inside some of the small victories yourself and Mads have had whilst you've been there? Yeah, well, I mean, there's tons and tons of things I think we could go into. I think for me, with, with the coaches, I feel like we're in a place where we have a very clear understanding now amongst the cohort about what the vision is, what our style of play is, what our technical programme looks like, what an Jazeera player looks like and how that translates into practice. I think that you know, that's something we put a lot of time and energy into. We spend minimum a couple of hours a week working just with the coaches on this. And one of the things I would say is that, you know, I think people can often forget who their most important, um, I would say, soldiers are and in, 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 in in the academy, it's your coaches. For, for me, you, you have to put so much time and energy into your coaches. And, of course, so everybody's important, but your coaches are the ones who do the work on the front line. They're the ones who interact daily with players. So I don't necessarily see my job as managing all of those players. We've got hundreds of players. Um, I want them to have a wonderful experience, but in order for them to have a wonderful experience, I have to influence the coaches, you know, and... We have 20-something coaches and I'll work with them frequently so that they understand the style, they understand the curriculum, they understand how we plan, how we make our coaching process. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I, I think we've influenced well is that there's a, there's a clear understanding of what, what's to be done. There's a clear structure. The boundaries are here, where you work within between those boundaries, the framework of how you plan, how you reflect, um, how you then plan again for the following week, what, you know, how we focus on players and what each player needs and how that relates into practice. You know, if you're doing this job properly and to the level that it should be done for a, a club the size of Jazeera, it takes a lot of time and takes a lot of energy and takes a lot of hours. And uh, I think that's one thing that's been really good is the coaches understanding really what's expected from how to plan and deliver on the field. We've brought in some really good people to add to and support what we already have. Um, a guy called Jack Cassidy, who's sensational. You know, we, we talk about, you know, I like the, the, the idea, I think it's in a book by, is it Damien Hughes? He talks about cultural architects and having people that don't just build your training program, don't just build your fitness program, but they build actually the culture in which you work. And there's a great saying about culture, each strategy for breakfast. And, I, I you know, I really... I really believe that if you don't get the culture right, then nothing else works. But culture is a very difficult thing to put your finger on. It's a very difficult thing to understand because, you know, the essence of culture is somebody saying, well, things have always been done like this. And does it mean it's right? Not necessarily, but if it's always been done like this for 20, 30 years, are you going to pick that moment to challenge it? Or are you going to take your time to challenge it and then change it? And, or are you even going to be able to change it? Because sometimes, you, you know, I don't think you, you can. But I think what you want to do is grasp an understanding of the behaviours that you want to see and then that shapes your culture. So if I could give you an example of that. When I first joined the club, it felt like there was a lot of, there wasn't enough care taken about the facility at, at times. And um, 
I put a big emphasis on you walk past a water bottle, pick it up, you know, whether you're a player, you're a coach, you're a technical director, whatever your position, pick up the water bottle and put it in the bin. So we ordered loads of bins, made this a pretty much a bit of a, a mandate amongst the coaches. We actually took a walk around the facility, all of us, and said, is this facility up to scratch? Is this suitable for the elite players? Because I think all those little signals give you an insight into what the environment is like. So if, if someone might say, well, why is a bottle on the floor important? Well, for me, it's a reflection on that environment. It, it's saying, well, we're happy to just throw stuff on the floor. Somebody else will pick it up for us. Well, I don't want to work like that. I don't think that's the standards that are, that, that are expected for the club. Um, so on that level, I think that's something that's been challenged and changed and for the good and people are taking a lot of pride in the environment now taking a lot of pride in the facility and you know i've had people come to the facility and say well it's the cleanest i've ever seen it and you might go well james that's not your job it's something to do with football but it, for me it feels like it is part of the job because you want to create an environment that is optimal for players developing and coaches enjoying their job and i think that that's one way to do it Small wins like that that are reflected on a day-to-day basis. And as you know, like the more momentum you gain from that, the more dopamine you're giving into the players, into the coaches, getting people to buy in. But I think, James, as you can attest it, with someone with the utmost coaching experience like yourself, there's a huge degree of ego involved in academies and coaching and some of the players. And I think how that's reflected in... A lot of people see even since now being an academy director, a technical director, it's very transient in nature. They'll come here for two, three years and they'll go for the short term when they'll never be prepared to lay down the seeds for trees they never want to see to grow. It's a very selfless thing. And I suppose with that being said, I mean, how do you necessarily get the buy-in from the people above in the hierarchy into that vision? I would say, you know, you mentioned about it being a transient nature. I think football in general is, you know, especially you talk about management positions and I'd include being a technical director and academy director in that as well as a first team manager. Um, because lots of clubs simply will just focus on the result because it's tangible, it's it's there, it's in front of you. This is, this is the result. We won 4-0, then we must be a good team. Okay, well, there's no context behind that. Have you challenged any players within that? Have you simply just paid your best players against another team that's not particularly good? So, but no, that that's easy. I can I can quantify that. So for me to to in order to kind of seek buy-in from above, I think it's a constant conversation about what we're doing and why we're doing it. You know, showing them physically, making videos, saying, look, this is what we've been doing with this player lately. There's a player that is now training with the first team, and the first team are really happy with him at the moment. I'd say three or four months ago, passing really struggled. Not wasn't a bad player, but his passing wasn't as good as it should be. So we put, you know, simply we put a training program together, an increased focus on the types of passes under pressure, where he receives the ball, all these different things. Put lots of time and effort and energy into the player, and then um, sure, sure enough, we're seeing improvements in his game. First team really happy with him. He's training more with them. Feedback's really good. Um, he's got an opportunity hopefully with this year to maybe make his debut but that's something that I don't want 
those above not to see. I want to make sure they see that the good work that my coaches and, and staff are doing. I want that that message being sung to them, saying, "Look, this is these are the types of things that are going on at the academy." So it doesn't just become results oriented. It doesn't just become, "Oh, well, we beat Shabab Alali last week, so we must be a good team." It's nice, by the way. I love to win football matches. You know, I don't know any coach that doesn't love winning football matches. I love winning football matches because you see your players' enjoyment from winning games. We all, you know, it's a competitive game, but you want to find that fine balance between getting results and 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 really developing football players. And it's not always an easy line to to to, to follow. Um, but you have to go back to a very simple question, I think, and say is, what is best for the player? So each week when you're discussing where these players are going to go the following week, so me, myself, and um, Captain Khaled and Captain Mubarak, say the under-21s and the under-19s head coaches and, and, and Jack, under-17s head coach, we'll sit together and say, what's on this week for the players? You know, what have we got coming up over the next few weeks? Okay, well, this player needs a little bit more challenge that player needs a bit more challenge. The under-19s have got a huge game this week. This player usually plays under-21. Should he play under-19s and get a feel for big games? Should he play under-19s and be the best player in the game for that game so that it builds other skills of not just purely being challenged by uh, difficulty of game? You know, he has to lead within the game. He has to take ownership within the game. He has to... You know, there's a pressure on to score, so it's different pressures. But it'll always come back to the question, what's the right thing for this player? So this week, what's the right thing for the individual? And and I think that's a really good way to, to direct what your actions and what you do. And I think when you're asked that question, it's very difficult once you've asked that question to answer anything else apart from what the right thing is for the player. It can't be then what the right thing is for me as the coach or what the right thing is for me for the team. If this player wins, if this player plays, we might win the game. But if that player plays... In under 17s, when he could play under 21s, for example, then if we're looking long term, that's going to be more beneficial for him to play under 21s. He's going to be challenged more. You know, he's going to play a higher intensity of football. Um, but it's a constant kind of conversation be- between that. Um, and, and we want players, you know, I make no bones about it. I want my players to want to win ferociously. But that means that we as coaches have to step back, allow them that desire to win. But we have to step back and facilitate that, manage it, harness it, you know, all of those things to ensure that the players don't lose that desire to win. The best players are the ones that want to win all the time, whether that's rock, paper, scissors, where you're tossing a coin, whether it's a 1v1 training session, whether it's penalty shootout, whether it's a match, they want to win. And I think that, that desire to win you want it, you never want to lose that, you want to harness that, but that doesn't mean that you should be sacrificing the development of your player, and it's a, it's a fine balance. And it all sounds like a very taxing and draining task. You're not only doing that for one player, you're doing it for tens, if not hundreds, of players and tens of coaches alike, James. I mean, we've spoke on this podcast, I suppose, for the last 40 minutes about mastering others in terms of self mastery. I mean, is there any habits or routines perhaps you have in place on a daily basis to go about executing your job? Um, I plan a lot. I find I get into a bit of chaos when I don't plan, you know, so I'm really diligent with planning. 
Um, I'm quite of the nature where I like to talk a lot and be out and, you know, moving things. I'm really impatient. I like to move things forward. And probably that's a good thing in many ways and a bad thing in, in other ways. Uh, and something I have to learn to be a little bit cooler with, you know, not everything can be done today. And, you know, it, it takes time. And what planning does for me is it allows me to do that. Um, I talk a lot with, with, with staff, you know, uh, I think it's, vitally important you communicate with with i think communication is the biggest thing you know you talk a lot with your staff and you run ideas past them and you seek their buy-in on it you take their you, you you listen to them you know that's a huge thing is you listen to their points and these are things that can help move us forward fine it's not you know it's not simply my idea it has to be everybody's and you have to believe that because we, we've got really good people in the team i brought in a guy recently mark from um from Mark was with Valencia and Atletico Madrid, coming as a coach slash analyst. Um, we've got Khaled and Mubarak who've been at the club for a long time and know the club and play for the national team. And, you know, we've got a good group of people that when we discuss things, we'll often input, provide input. And you go, wow, this is a really good thing. You know, brought in a guy, Dr. Jonathan, who's, who consults with us. And Jonathan's role, you know, he was previously head of sports science for Fulham. Head of innovation, really interesting guy, totally different point of view from me, which you know, he'll challenge lots of the things I do and lots of things he'll challenge. And I'll go, okay, maybe I need to change that. And lots of things he'll challenge. And I'll go, well, actually, no, I don't agree. And probably now more robust and, and more sure in the answer because he's challenging in the first place. So I try and surround myself with people, kind of, I know it sounds a bit funny, but I, my uncle gave me this picture once. He said, surround yourself with the same people, the people on the same mission as you. I think that's so true is you want to surround yourself with people that are on the same mission because, you know, when, when, when you, when it, something difficult comes, it's where you share that load and you can get people's input and you can carry that load together. Um, you know, other daily habits. I think a lot of coffee. I love coffee. <laughs> you know, Have you tried much. Arabica yet? Oh, I love it. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> coffee there. After you live in Australia, you become a massive coffee snob. Um, you go a serious coffee snob, you know. I remember my boss taking me around, Scott, Scott, his name was, and brilliant fella, and he took me around all these different coffee shops. And uh, When I first moved to Australia, and he said, that does good coffee, bad coffee, good coffee. I said, Scott, isn't it all just coffee, mate? You know, it's just a cup of coffee. You know, you, you, you put the Nescaf in, you think it's like, he was offended by it. You know, we, we couldn't believe it, like that I was I was talking about coffee in that way. But after a few years there, you become an absolute coffee snob. Um, but, you know, I, what other things do I do? I suppose I, I like, I have a nice drive into work, I have a, you know, 40-minute drive into work. I probably have a couple of things to do on them drives into work. I either, you know, reflect and think about the day ahead, which I find useful that time. Um, I'll call people chat to them um you you know i'll speak to my brother or my mates on the way uh, and chat things over and you know I, I probably constantly trying to visualize and talk through different things all the time i've got a lot of whiteboards around when you come to my office everything's a whiteboard basically the whole, one room's a whiteboard where you can jot stuff down talk through things um and i, I like audio books i think it's, you've got to try and zone out sometimes uh, I think your audio books, your podcast, they, they they help you do those things. Um, but I haven't, I probably haven't put any habits in place that I would say 
you know, been really strategic about habits and say, you've got to do this at this time, you know, you go to bed and turn your phone off and then, you know, you do a meditation and then you put lavender spray on your pillow and you have a great night's sleep, all them things. I probably don't do anything like that, um, but I've found a routine that, that works for me, I suppose. I think it's one of those, you genuinely love football and that kind of rubs off speaking to you now. We spoke a few times on the phone and whatnot and it's certainly an infinite game the role you have as an academy director. And you do need infinite energy to play in an infinite game. Lo and behold, I mean, the first answer you gave me in this podcast, you were speaking about a bloody rapper, a chocolate rapper. You remember from a game in which Robbie Fowler scored a hat-trick all those years ago. With that being said, like getting out of bed in the morning, James, I mean, are you a goal-oriented person? Is that what drives you? Or is it just the love and the passion for the game of football itself? Probably a bit of both, if I'm being honest. I'd say football's a passion without doubt. I love football, but I like leading things and I like leading people. You know, I find probably nearly as much meaning in that as I do in football. You know, I'd love the idea one day to maybe lead an organisation that's not to do with football um, to see whether, and I think lots of the principles of leadership within football do translate into 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 business and other things, um, so I, I love that and I love that kind of the weight of the responsibility that you know you've got to do a good job for people and you've got to make it a good environment for people to be in. And, you know, I feel that there's a big sense of responsibility for that. Um, goals you've got to have, you have to have goals. You know, and whether they're personal or professional, you know, personally. You know, I don't want to be bogged down by goals. I don't want them to become a wrench around my neck, but I want them to be something that I, I strive towards and I, I aim towards. Um, but I think when you're leading a group of people, you have to have goals. You have to have things that are clear and tangible to aim towards because people have got to know where to direct their attention. And when you've got a goal, you know, and when you work at a football club, you start with a really big goal and you make it into loads of little mini goals and sub goals and the micro goals. And then it gets fed down to all different people. They've all got to feed into that one overall arching goal, that one big goal of we want to produce a player who's ready to go and play in the first team. And to do that, there's a million and one different things you've got to have a handle of. But, if you don't have any clear goals, where does somebody orient their attention? Where does somebody orient all of their plan? Where, what, why are we doing what we do? We don't have a goal. Otherwise, we're just doing it for the sake of it. And I think if you've got a goal, every, every action you take should be affiliated to that goal. So this is the goal. Well, every action I take should be a positive, there should be a positive feedback loop to say, I'm achieving something that's getting me closer and closer to that goal. So, you know, the goal is to prepare to play for the first team. He's under 21s at the moment. Well, what's the gap between him and the first team? Well, the gap right now is he doesn't use his 1v1 enough. He doesn't run in behind enough. Okay, well, every action I now take over the next six weeks has to be in line with that goal, has to be attuned with that goal. So it might be that for one week we're focused one versus one specific tasks in a game. It might be that we do extra training sessions with that player. It might be that we do video work with that player. Okay, well, there's three things that every time I do one of those things, that should be a feedback loop to me, something positive to say, right, tick, that's 
that's moving me closer and closer towards achieving that goal. Um, so I think when you're leading people, you have to. I think personally, you, you want to have some goals, certainly, but you want them more for aspirational purposes, I would say, rather than anything else. That's how I find it useful anyways, you know. Like I make no bones. I'd love to manage, be a manager one day at first team level. I love being a technical director. I love leading people, but I'd love also to stand on the sideline and manage football players in, in a first team match and kind of feel that intensity of of being a manager. Um, but if I was never to get there, I would never, yeah. I would never look back and go, "Oh, that was rubbish." That because you, you enjoy the journey, you know, you enjoy, you want to enjoy things that you do every single day of the week. You know, I love going into the academy and talking to the chef, you know, he's, he's a nutter and, and, but he brings a brilliant energy to the place, you know, and I like people who are, I like people who take pride in what they do, you know, whether, whether, whatever your job is, whether you're a security guard at the academy, take pride in what you do, moves places, moves things forward. And I think there's a simple matrix where you think, performance and performance and energy you know if somebody's got really good energy and performs in what they do they're an a-star person you know i look at our chef at the academy he's incredible energy he's always happy he's always smiling but he takes serious pride in everything he does he wants to provide the best culinary experience for his players you know and those people really help you move forward um I went off on, my, on a mad tangent there. I don't even know how I got onto the chef. Oh, it's, it's all good stuff. And to be honest, James, I mean, brings it all back to the end of the day. I mean, your big job is player development, of course. I mean, you're focused on developing players for the first team environment, not necessarily right now, but over the future years. And I think it's an incredible journey you've been on starting in Liverpool, working your way up through the community programme, spells in China, Australia, Singapore, now the United Arab Emirates. But I suppose if I was to ask you one tough question, I mean, what do you believe now about player development all these years later, after all these international experiences that you necessarily didn't believe when you left Liverpool 2014? Wow, that's a brilliant question. Um, I'd have to think about that. What do I believe now? I think small details matter we and really really matter um where you place a cone can have a huge influence on the type of session which means that uh, the type of session might not be suitable for that players to to improve you know I think one thing I'd say is that I realize now the importance of of small details you know and I suppose aligned with that would be about having the right people around you, you know, people who are really knowledgeable around you because probably naively when I was a young lad, I probably thought, oh, I could do that, no problem. No, oh, that's easy. I can do that. But people people who are elite coaches for me, you know, Michael Beals, somebody I, I try and speak to a lot, he's an elite coach and he can take really complex ideas and make them very simple to understand. That's an incredible skill. You know, so when I was probably a young lad, I was thinking, ah, I could easily go and put that session on, no problem. But well, why why am I putting that session on and what influence and benefits that gonna have for the player? And um now I know well it takes a take it takes a team to really produce one top quality player. You've got to have an expert in, in each of those fields because 
people people move you forward and you, you can't do it alone and if you think you can do it alone then then you're kidding yourself you know you've got to have the right people around you to 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 achieve the things that you want to achieve that's funny you mentioned the details because aside obviously from your day-to-day work with al jazeera james you've developed a nice little niche online platform called underground coaching you tell our audience listening a bit more about that um yeah so i suppose i'd always had this idea where i i, I thought there was a gap for tactical education for players and coaches um i think there was a, a space where I always found when I was coaching or leading coach education sessions or even involved in a coach education session, the moment somebody got out of tactics board or the moment somebody got out um, video on a game and started talking through it, everyone zoned in and they, they really wanted to listen And because coaches love tactics, but I think it's the most difficult thing to talk about. Technical skills are a lot more closed and, you know, it's a lot easier to understand. You know, I, th- I think I could almost could almost get my mum to teach some technical skills. I probably wouldn't want her to, to teach them, but, you know, how you pass a football, lock your ankle, hit it with the inside of your foot with this amount of pace, they're fairly closed, whereas tactical things are evolving all the time. So I wanted to put something together for coaches to be able to um, access that and, and, and access tactical content. So there's myself and, and, and a few others who are involved in that. Um, and and we, we have a subscription-based, program where players and coaches log on and for players we talk about mentality and we bring in guest speakers where we where we you know we brought in a UFC fighter we brought in Katarina Johnson Thompson who was uh, you know heptathlon world champion she uh, spoke to all the players you know and UFC fighter Danny Roberts spoke to players and kids about how do I compose myself when I'm about to go into battle how do I control my emotions? How do I prepare myself? How do I act like a professional, even when I'm not a professional? You know, that was a real good learning thing from Danny is that he said uh, one of the biggest things I'd like a young person to take away is that when I was becoming, or when I was aiming to become a UFC fighter, I wasn't a professional, but I acted like a professional. I think it's a really valuable lesson. I, I, I use that a lot with our players. You might, you might only be 15, 16 years old. Start to act like a professional now. It'll, it'll help you get to, you know, It'll, it'll move you closer to achieving what you want to achieve. Uh, so going back to that, we we, we opened up our under, underground coaching um, tactical blueprint, which is an online course uh, giving coaches a framework around tactics in a specific formation, gives them a framework to talk about the game, specific details, so they can take them things and work with their players on them. Um, so we've got some really cool things happening with that. Um, got some really good people involved with that um, and you know we also do our mentorship things where we work with I'm working with a guy at the moment in, in Ireland really good guy we'll work on a one-to-one basis to help shape his club's philosophy help shape his coaching ideas and, and give him a, a tactical blueprint probably to, to work from um, so I set that up about eight, 18 months ago and it's actually moved really quickly which I wasn't expecting it to do but it's uh, it, it, it was it's really enjoyable and something that is still is still going on at the moment ever evolving and I'm sure James will continue yeah. to go from strength to strength I've been on the Instagram page I've been on the website a few times and to be honest everyone should check it out definitely worth the check some fascinating stuff there and to be honest what I like most about the tactical content you put up is the language 
it's simply explained. You see a lot of language connotated for tactics nowadays, and it's just that's just. Sorry, I lost you there a second. Sorry, James. I was just saying what I like the most about the work you're doing with underground coaching is your concise way of explaining tactics, the language used. Yeah, yeah I think um, everything comes back to how you communicate, I suppose. So what, what we've aimed to do is take difficult ideas and make them as simple as possible to understand, you know. I think it was Einstein who had something about, you know, if you, if you can't explain it in simple terms and you don't understand it properly, it's, it's it, you know, I, I like that because you want that message to be understood by everybody who's listening to it. And if it's not understood by anybody who's listening to it, then it's not explained properly. You know, I, I'd love my mum to be able to watch it and partly understand it. Um, so I've given me a bit of a rap here, haven't I? But, you know, the... Uh, I think it's... Yeah. <laughs> It's important, isn't it, the language you use, because it might sound great in your head, but if you can't articulate that, it's meaningless. You know, you might have the best tactics in your head and all these things, can't articulate it, it's meaningless. You know, so the, the coaches I've always really enjoyed listening to are the ones who can take them ideas and make them simple to understand. And I think when you can do that, then you can move mountains with your players. And as we close, James, I mean, for me, it's been an entirely fascinating discussion. There's load of, loads of side notes I've read, wrote down, perhaps for another podcast another day. But just to close on one question, I mean, you've been on an absolutely thrilling and exciting journey so far, and it's an inspiration to many. But what advice would you have for those coaches, perhaps back in Ireland, back in the UK, and they, that are willing to throw themselves at a challenge like yourself? Go, go and do it you know it's easier said than done but the people you meet the places you go to it's, it's so interesting you know what I mean lots of people want to work in football in England don't get me wrong I'd love to work in football in England again one day for sure but going to different places and travelling to you know far away lands you, you meet all kinds of people and you build up these kind of stories and I think it just gives you such an amazing understanding of what you value and the things you enjoy and you know you, you, you have stories that other people probably would never even dream of and I think go and do it because football can take you to a lot of places and you'll learn so many things from doing it and you know there's many opportunities out there so many opportunities out there but one thing I'd say is as well is that you can't escape the process of practice so if you, if you want to become a really good football coach go and take three months off and go and coach in the States for three months on camps. You might be coaching, you know, players who aren't necessarily brilliant football players, but you're practicing the process every single day of the week. You're practicing coaching football, and that's a lot of practice in a short space of time. Um, just take the step and go and do it. You know, there's, there's, there's so many amazing things out there to see. And football can take you to so, so many places. It's, it's, uh, I think it all helps as well. I think it all helps, it all accumulates and you know, those experiences that you have from life, they, they, they help in your professional career, certainly. I think your career today is a shining example of that. But um, James, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. A lot of lessons learned, a lot of inspiration taken and I'll be sure to link Underground Coaching and show notes below. Hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Thank you.
appreciate it a lot. Thank you, uh, Connor, and hopefully we'll chat again soon.